Close your eyes and imagine this. It's 1914. You're in Belfast in Northern Ireland. It's nighttime and you're standing on the street in the rain outside a small hardware store named Morrison's. You're here to attend a seance. A side door creaks open and you're invited inside the building. You're led through the dark up a set of stairs and further up an even narrower set of stairs again. This leads you into an attic room. The room itself is dimly lit by red gaslight which reflects off the old wallpaper that peels off at the edges on the wall. On a nearby shelf sits very few ornaments but you do notice a small handbell and a trumpet hanging on the wall above. In the centre of this dusty attic sits a wooden table surrounded by wooden chairs. You're instructed to take a seat. Four family members of varying ages from young to old quietly enter the room and take their places at the table. Finally, one last person enters the room. She's a timid girl of around 16 years of age. She's dressed in a white blouse, a slate grey skirt, long black stockings and small black shoes. She wears thin spectacles and has her brown hair tied back with a small coloured silk. Her name is Kathleen. She's who you've come here to see. A moment of silence is called for as every sitter at the table links hands to form a circle in the darkened room. Kathleen begins lowly reciting the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And soon the other sitters at the table join in. This day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. After a moment, they break into a mysterious hymn together. Their voices getting louder, and louder, and louder, until suddenly, it stops. In a quiet, shy voice, Kathleen asks out loud. Nakoma? Are you there? Nakoma, if you're with us tonight, please, let us know. Suddenly, the heads of each family member drop into a trance-like state as the gaslight flickers. The spirits have arrived. You hear a faint knocking sound in the room that gets louder and louder and more frantic and more frantic until it stops. Then, with several sledgehammer-like blows to the floor, they begin again, this time shuffling like pieces of sandpaper on the floor. Horses' hooves sound from all corners of the dark room as if they're trotting through. The loud noise of wood sawing can be heard below you and it's silenced only when you hear a ball bouncing loudly across the floor. The handbell begins to ring manically as you hear the sound of the trumpet tooting sporadically. As you look up in the darkness to see where this noise is coming from, you realise that these objects are now floating over your head. 
As your eyes glance downwards, you notice through the red-lit room that the table in front of you has begun to levitate up from the ground. No matter how hard your hands try to push it down, it cannot. It continues to rise, tilting left, right and upside down in the air before slamming back down to the ground, bringing everything to a silent standstill. Kathleen begins another prayer. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside stones. As the circle slowly joins in together. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Amen. As they finish, the room falls silent again and three loud knocks are heard. Good evening, friends, she says. This is the Gollaher Circle, and their seance has just begun. Crack everybody, welcome to episode 8 of Watch Your Angles, the podcast purely for magicians. Now that intro was pretty badass, right? We're doing it a little bit different this episode because this episode is going to be a little bit different to some of the last ones. So if you're a return customer, you'll know that we usually talk about things in the magic world, magic products, issues in the magic world, performing... All that fun stuff. If you've just joined us, and I have a feeling a lot of people that aren't actually magicians will listen to this episode because it's it's just about a really, really cool and interesting story. So if you're new, you're very welcome. You're joining the family of a small, about 150 unique listeners. So welcome to the club. My name is Rua, or Paul Gleason, and I'm going to be your host through this little unique story. What story, I hear you ask? Well, this is a story that contains... A psychic, one of the world's most famous magicians, one of the world's most famous writers, and a little bit of history as well. There's going to be some ghosts, a little bit of talking to the dead, some seances in there for good measure, but it's going to be a really unique story that hopefully you haven't heard before, but for sure you'll remember and possibly tell some of your friends after you hear it as well, because it's quite unique, a little bit bizarre, and unfortunately has a deeply unsatisfying end. <laughs> <laughs> but you're going to understand why that is the more we get into the story. So, without further waffle, let's get straight into episode 8. This episode is called Breaking the Circle. So, just to avoid honeydicking you and trying to build something up, I'm going to come out and just tell you that this is a story about an incredibly famous Irish psychic medium named Kathleen Gallagher, who was from Belfast, and she performed there as a psychic medium in the early 1900s. She was just 16 years old, but her story is quite interesting. In order for me to tell this story properly, though, we kind of have to look into a little bit of background of the whole spiritualism industry. So essentially, like, the best place to start is the... <laughs> 
<laughs> the best place to start is to start. <laughs> no shit, Paul. Well done. That's good. That could be a logo for, for marathons. The best place to start is to start marathons. Right, so we're just going <laughs> to have to have a little look at the history behind this whole world of spiritualism. So we could probably gather that if you're listening to this, either you or someone you know, maybe your aunt or your uncle, have had some kind of psychic experience or they've met a psychic, paid for a psychic, they've had their palm read, they've had their tarot cards done, they've gone to a seance maybe, any of these freaky deaky paranormal things that you sometimes see in movies now that freak you out. But have you ever stopped to wonder, where did all of this come from? How did this get started? There's a lot of answers to that question, but for the purposes of this story, and kind of it's a widely held view that it all originated with two sisters named Kate and Margaret Fox. So in 1848, these two sisters, Margareta or Maggie and Katie Fox, lived in Hydesdale in New York. They were living in an old farmhouse there. And one night, it actually happened to be April Fool's, but one night they happened to hear mysterious rappings or knocks on the walls and on the floorboards in the cellar of the farmhouse that they were staying in. They came to the strange conclusion that these knocks were actually communications from some kind of paranormal source. So they called the neighbours in, they got their parents in and started to demonstrate. So they would say things like, how old is Katie? And there would be several knocks to indicate her age and the knocks would be correct. They would say, can you count to 15? And there would be 15 loud knocks on either the walls or to the floorboards, but really loud knocks. They would ask, if you're uh, an injured spirit stuck in another world, give us one knock for yes, two knocks for no. And it would indicate an answer. So you've probably seen that in a movie before. Maybe you've read about it or you've said it as a joke. Give me one knock for yes, two knocks for no, that type of thing. That all originated with these two girls, the Fox sisters. So as it drew more and more attention, their parents deserted the farmhouse and they sent the two girls to live with their sister Leah in Rochester. Now at this time, Rochester was kind of like, I want to say love is in the air, but I really mean spiritualism is in the air. Because at this time, there was a kind of a a real urge uh, and there was a lot of religious reform happening. So we had the Seventh-day Adventists came from Rochester at that time. We also had the the, the Mormons came from Rochester around that time as well. So there was a real interest and belief in spirituality at this time. Now, two local community leaders, Amy and Isaac Post, took a particular interest in the two sisters. Now, they had lost their daughter, tragically, several years before. But they wanted to know more, so they invited the two sisters over to their home to kind of to give an informal demonstration of the skills that they so possessed. They wanted to see if they could work outside of the farmhouse. So the two sisters go along, and of course, they start doing their thing. The knocks start happening. All the spooky stuff. And not only that, But Kate then has a psychic experience where, through her, the dead daughter of Amy and Isaac Post starts to communicate to them. Spooky stuff, right? So the Posts then completely go all in and go, "These, these, these two are just incredible, they're unbelievable. And next thing you know, their sister Leah starts kind of promoting them. She books out venues and hundreds and hundreds of people show up 
just to watch them do their thing. These mysterious knocks on stage where they supposedly communicate with the dead and put people in touch with dead spirits. Now another rumour that had happened around this time was that the deceased body that they were communicating with or the spirit they were communicating with came from uh, a peddler who was murdered in the farmhouse they lived in five years before they moved there. So that was kind of the, the link, the story of where this spirit actually came from. Now, I know what you're thinking. Some knocks, some simple knocks. That's not really that impressive, right? It's not really any real evidence of of the afterlife or of spirits. But what we have to remember is that this started happening in 1848. Of course, we don't have any cinema. We don't have any SFX in movies. We've never seen anyone fly like Superman. Our minds at that time wouldn't have been quite attuned the way they are in 2020. So a simple knock may have just seemed completely paranormal to you because your mind couldn't connect where it could be coming from or how it could be happening. And someone could just say, oh, it's the spirits. And in a time where religion was quite big, well, I suppose religion still is quite big, but in that time anyway, you might have just bought into it, which is clearly what happened. So these two sisters were credited with beginning the movement of spiritism. Not just kind of, most people would agree that these two sisters were the originators of the religious movement, spiritualism. But for argument's sake, if you're interested in this subject and where it all kind of came from, some other names worthy of note were Franz Anton Mesmer. He was an Australian healer in the 18th century. We can also talk about Emanuel Swedenborg, who is a Swedish philosopher and a mystic. And he described things like an afterlife consisting of three heavens, three hells, and, and an interim destination. So... The world of spirits is what he called it. And then we had Andrew Jackson Davis, who was a 19th century American seer. So all of these people do respectfully deserve a shout out when we're talking about the history of spiritualism. But there is a specific reason why I'm choosing to talk and focus on Katie and Maggie Fox. So their act was doing these live performances of the Knox. Katie and Maggie would go on tour to different cities around the state and do their shows. Then afterwards, they would do kind of one-on-one sessions with people. They would charge a dollar in. Their sister Leah would hold seances in hotel rooms while the two sisters were were out on tour as well. In their lifetime, the, the Civil War had just ended, so there were so many people that had lost loved ones that they wanted to communicate with. And spiritualism was the direct connection to those loved ones that they had lost. So it's actually estimated that by the 1880s, there were over 6 million devout spiritualists in the US alone. So that just shows you how big a movement this really was kicked off by these two sisters but like most good things it had to come to an end eventually right and one of the sisters decided to fuck it all up for everybody else (laughs) so maggie fox was the one who brought this house of cards crumbling down there's always a maggie fucking maggie ruining the crack (laughs) so maggie ended up meeting this fella who was 13 years older than her he was a devout Catholic. His name is Eliza Kent Kane. He met her and watched the act and he was completely sceptical, thought the whole thing was bullshit, even though he he had written himself that he couldn't actually figure out how they were making the knocks. He thought there was absolute bullshittery involved. He had written, therefore, (laughs) what did he write? After a whole month's trial, I could make nothing of them, he confessed. Therefore, they are a great mystery. So he started dating her and, um, and through their dating, 
He encouraged her to, quote, give up her life of dreamy sameness and suspected deceit. So she eventually gave in and um, she retired from the spiritualism stuff that she was doing. Uh, they got married and she started going to Catholic school to, to, to please him. So after his death in 1857, she she kept up the cat, the Catholicism thing that she was into, but she also began drinking heavily, all while keeping her vow to wholly and forever abandon spiritualism. So that's Maggie's bag, right? Now, Kate wasn't in the same bag. She wanted to keep making money, so she kept up the act uh, and continued to develop her mediumistic powers. And it all came to a head when the New York World published an article in 1888. So Maggie was scheduled to go on stage uh, in New York and she was going to denounce the whole spiritualism world and explain the whole story behind how they were tricking everybody. So the New York World paid Maggie $1,500 to essentially spill the beans. And beans she did spill to, uh, to come clean and explain the whole story behind everything and to explain exactly how they were making these mysterious knocks. The following night, she went on stage in the New York Academy of Music in front of 2,000 people and did a full confession and a full expose on the whole thing. So a direct quote from that is open air quotes. (laughs) My sister Katie and I were very young children when this horrible deception began. At night when we went to bed, we used to tie an apple on a string and move the string up and down, causing the apple to bump on the floor. Or we would drop the apple on the floor, making a strange noise every time it would rebound. Then she began to speak kind of more specifically about what they learned in Rochester in the farmhouse. And she says, There it was that we discovered a new way to make the wraps. My sister Katie was the first to observe that by swishing her fingers, she could produce certain noises with her knuckles and joints and that the same effect could be made with the toes. Finding that we could make wraps with our feet, first with one foot, then with both, we practiced until we could do this easily when the room was dark. Like most perplexing things when made clear, it is astonishing how easily it's done. The wrapping is simply the result of perfect control of the muscles of the leg below the knee, which governs the tendons of the foot and allow the action of the toe and ankle bones that are not commonly known. Such perfect control is only possible when the child is taken at an early age and carefully and continually taught to practice the muscles, which grow stiffer in later years. This, then, is the simple explanation of the whole method of the knocks and raps. She also went on to describe, basically, the gullibility of people, which is, in a way, it's bad, but at this point, she was obviously feeling guilty and wanted to clear her conscience of a lot of stuff. So she went on to say, A great many people, when they hear the rapping, imagine at once that the spirits are touching them. It's a very common delusion. Some very wealthy people came to see me some years ago when I lived on 42nd Street and I did some rappings for them. I made the spirit rap on the chair and one of the ladies cried out, I feel the spirit tapping me on the shoulder. Of course, that was pure imagination. So after making her speech to a room of 2,000 people, The room fell deathly silent. She asked for a wooden stool, which they brought out. A clinician came out as well. So she removed her shoe, removed her stocking, and put her foot up on the stool. And through the silence of the room, after a moment or two, everyone could hear really loud clicks, or raps, if you want to call them that, coming from her direction. And of course, a doctor was there to confirm that, yes, She's making these noises and this effect 
with just her toes. And there you have it. She was just clicking her fucking toes, lads. She was clicking her toes. Her and her sister clicking their toes. And they started a religious movement, which to this day earns over a billion dollars across the world. Unbelievable. So to me, that story is incredible. It's a story about genuine deception and lies that have had a huge carryover into the modern day in in a multitude of different ways. Unfortunately, the Fox sisters both became complete alcoholics and one died from severe alcohol poisoning and the other one died eight months later. Now, later on in life, it is important to say that later on in life, after Maggie denounced spiritism, she tried to come back into the world when she was penniless and broke. She tried to come back into that world and she tried to say that, look, the spirits told me to to make up this lie, to say that it was all fake and uh, and I actually am the real deal and the thing with the toes was all, was all nonsense. Now, please send money. Please send me money. But because her confession dealt such a death blow to the to the whole spiritualism industry, that's such a hard one to say twice, <laughs> spiritualism industry, because her confessions harmed the industry, <laughs> I escaped it, because her confession harmed the industry so much, she was hated by all spiritualists and they, they would not welcome her back in. So she eventually changed her name and went back down the road of doing exposés of seances and explaining how, how psychics really do what they actually do. But eventually ended up dying after her sister died of severe alcohol overdose. And that is the, the story of Kate and Margaret Fox. At this point you might be wondering, what on earth has any of this got to do with magic? But I I believe it actually ties into magic quite a lot. Because what's the difference between the Fox sisters and and a magician? Well, a magician tells you that he's lying and you have this tacit agreement with a magician that what you know he's doing is fake. But you might do it so well that you momentarily believe it, but he will never tell you that it's completely real. Whereas a psychic will always tell you that it's real and that you have to buy into it and that you have to pay a lot of money for the experience. So the difference is... Magicians tell you they're lying, psychics don't. As we progress through the history of the psychic world, one of history's most famous entertainers and one of our greatest illusionists, Mr. Harry Houdini, enters the fray. So in 1913, Houdini's mother passed away. To the uninitiated, Houdini had a a very sycophantic, close relationship with his mother. Very, very close. He collapsed on stage the moment he was told that that she had died. And after that, he was really insistent on trying to find a way to communicate with her. And at this time, spiritualism was a booming. So he figured maybe I could go and see a psychic and maybe they'll put me in touch with my dead man. Now, many a psychic did he go to and quickly realized that what they're doing are the same tricks that magicians are using. And he saw through it immediately. That coupled with the fact that his mother was Hungarian and didn't speak a word of English, yet whenever she supposedly came through through a psychic medium in a seance, she spoke perfect English and said sentence that, sentences that she would never have said. So he knew the whole thing was a complete fake. And this really, really pissed him off. Now, Houdini's a fascinating character. I've been obsessed with Houdini since I first got into magic. I've read everything I could get my hands on about Houdini. I have all his books sat here as I'm doing this podcast right in front of me. And it's thanks to that that I found the the story of Kathleen Gallagher that we're going to build up to. But it's important to note that when you piss Houdini off, he he doesn't let up. 
he's kind of the wrong guy to piss off. And because he felt so hard done by, by these deceptive mediums and psychics, he went on a crusade against them to expose them. Every opportunity he could get to expose them, he took. He used to go into seances in disguise and stand up halfway through the seance, turn on the lights and expose how everything was being done. One of the tricks that, that they used to do during a seance is you'd be in a room, a curtained off room, and supposedly um, you would feel a cold touch of a spirit on the back of your neck. But what was actually happening is they were putting a stick with a piece of ice tied to the end of it through the curtain and it would just gently touch the back of your neck for a second and in the darkness of the room you would never know and they would tell you that that's the spirit world touching you but Houdini would know that they're going to do that and he would grab the stick and stand up and go this is a stick with ice or whatever I don't know I wasn't there but <laughs> but I imagine he'd say this is a fucking stick with ice motherfuckers this is all bu- <laughs> this is all bullshit so while Houdini was launching his crusade against the spiritualism world Another major figure from that era came into the equation. And that figure was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Now, if you don't know, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was the the author and the creator of the incredible Sherlock Holmes series. You know, Sherlock Holmes, the master of logic and rational thinking. Well, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle became a devout spiritualist. He had unfortunately lost his son, Kingsley. Kingsley! My dear boy, he had, well, it's actually quite sad, but he had lost his son Kingsley in the First World War and had a psychic experience with Lady Gregory, who supposedly communicated her through her mediumistic powers, put him in touch with his dead son Kingsley. So after that, he was so deeply affected by the experience that he decided to devote every power, every ounce of his fame and fortune into promoting the, the world of spiritualism and the idea that psychics can, can put us in touch with our loved ones. To cut quite a long story short, Houdini and Conan Doyle end up becoming friends. They, they meet each other after a show in London and become really good friends and pen pals and they visit each other, they holiday with each other and all this fun stuff. But the problem started arising when Arthur Conan Doyle believed that Houdini was in fact a kind of a paranormal sensation because Houdini could escape any situation he was put in. He could perform miracles similar to those of psychics. He could do seance tricks. And Arthur Conan Doyle just couldn't accept that Houdini was purely just a trickster. Despite Houdini telling him multiple times, what I do is magic, it's sleight of hand, it's deception. Arthur Conan Doyle would just completely remain kind of ignorant to that and firmly hold strong in his belief that Houdini was the real deal. Even to the point that Houdini once set up a whole kind of a small act in his home, invited Conan Doyle over, did an incredible piece of mentalism for him, whereby Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was given a piece of paper and kind of a pen and told, leave the house, go anywhere, walk as far away from the house as you want, write down the first word that you want to think of in your mind, fold up the piece of paper and come back into the house. He'd fold back up the piece of paper, came back into the house, and Houdini had kind of a, I think it was a number of cork. There was, they were balls made from the same material as, like, you know, cork um, that you would find in a wine bottle. So Arthur Conan Doyle chose one of the balls just to make sure they weren't set up. He dipped it in ink and he placed it on, on what we would call a slate. He dipped it in white ink and placed it on a slate. And then without any 
weird witchery jiggery pokery the ball suddenly starts to be move along the slate and it spells out the word that Arthur Conan Doyle was thinking of which he wrote down a while away from the house impossible right so Houdini went on to explain how the trick was done and look this is just pure deception and Arthur Conan Doyle just wouldn't buy it very very bizarre and it went to the point that Arthur Conan Doyle essentially tried to recruit Houdini because at this point Arthur Conan Doyle became the figurehead for spiritualism he was the one pushing it he was giving presentations across the world there's now a really famous photo that he was the one that pushed this photo and it was of a girl that sees two fairies in her garden and it was deemed to be a photograph of real life fairies and he went across america doing presentations showing this photo going look this is like magic exists and all this stuff what he didn't realize was that the photos were completely doctored up and the images of the fairies were actually cut out from an illustrated sherlock holmes comic book and he didn't even recognize that someone <laughs> someone had just taken two of the fairies from one of his books and photos essentially did like an old school <laughs> way of photoshopping somehow it into an image so if you google girls fairy on your phone right now you'll see the image. It's a black and white. You'll see two two kind of white. I think it's two white fairies in the image. But Arthur Conan Doyle was all in and he just didn't want to admit defeat. And he knew that if he got Houdini on his side with his wealth and his celebrity, if Houdini started saying, look, this is the real deal, the spiritualism world would just boom and they would make so much more money. Unfortunately, that, that never happened. And it all came to a head when some some words were exchanged between the two. Houdini basically had a go at Arthur Conan Doyle's wife, who claimed to be a psychic as well. And she had done a psychic sitting, or a seance sitting for uh, for Houdini. And he just thought it was just bullshit. So he had said this to somebody somewhere. Conan Doyle found out, wasn't pleased, sent him a letter. And then Houdini sent a letter back and it kind of goes, it's like getting into an argument with someone in the comments section. But, but back in the 1900s, it goes backwards and forwards and they have a massive falling out. Now, there are loads of resources you can find to, if you're interested in this story, there's a full book published about it by a guy called Sanford. I think it's called Houdini versus Conan Doyle. I lent it to my, my good friend Paddy Courtney because he was actually starring in a, in a Houdini type series in the, in the UK a, a year or two ago. So he still has it. But it's a great, great book to read. There are many theories behind Houdini's death, actually, and Arthur Conan Doyle's name kind of crops up once or twice in the uh, in those theories. But that's a separate that would be a separate podcast in itself that would take a long, long time to explain. So let's just leave it at that. And Houdini's crusade continued on. Now he ended up writing several books about exposés on mediums and and, and fraudsters. Some of his books were Harry Houdini on Deception. He had Miracle Mongers and Their Methods. He had The Right Way to Do Wrong. And most importantly, he had a small book called A Magician Amongst the Spirits. Now, it's this book that grabbed me the most. Because when I became obsessed with Houdini, it was through a book written by William Kalouche. It was called The Making of America's First Superhero. Unbelievable, mind-blowing book that details every piece of Harry Houdini history you'll ever need to know. So from that, I found that the other smaller books that Houdini himself had written. So I'm reading this book, A Magician Among the Spirits, and I'm, I'm fascinated by everything he's writing. And then I get to page 173. And on that page, he writes about a small family in Belfast called the Gullihers, 
who had formed a mediumistic circle. So they were basically a family of psychic mediums that were doing incredible work in Belfast. Now, I had never heard of this family before in my life. I'd never even heard the name Gallagher listed in any of these talks of psychics. And it just kind of blew my mind that there was a family that were famous enough for Houdini to recognise from the States and that he wanted to talk about to find out more and to get involved in their expose. So in this, I think it lasts for two pages. It goes from 173 to 175. And in it, he outlined a very brief story. I read that story and I thought, this is amazing. And it led me down this road of doing loads of research and finding out as much as I possibly could about this family of psychic mediums. And I know it will sound silly, but I kind of just got a bit obsessed with it. I almost got a documentary made about it. I was on Ryan Tuberty's radio show talking about it. Then I was in the newspapers talking about it. It's just something I've been really fascinated with. So it's what I wanted to share with you guys here. Now, I hope by the end of it, you'll understand why I gave you such a long intro spiel to help you understand that essentially to this point, the creators of the spiritism world have come clean and said, this is, look, this is all fucking fake. We're just clicking our toes, lads. <laughs> um, that Houdini's figuring out every single seance trickster there is out there. By the way, at this point, it's also worth mentioning that there was also the Scientific American put up like $5,000, a huge amount, of, a huge amount of money at that time, to anybody that could actually prove their psychic ability. Of course, no one claimed it. And even to this day, the Randy Foundation offers up a million dollars to anyone that can prove their psychic ability in front of a board of, of, of scientists and judges. And to this day, no one's come close to winning that million. So let's just leave it and safe to say that if there is some kind of psychic ability out there, we've yet to see it. Because so far, it's just been tricks and clever deceptions to this point. Now, as Houdini went further into his career, he would regularly write articles for the Scientific American. And he would send ambassadors to these seances in different parts of the world. And I would ask them to write back with their findings. Because he, he wanted to have a really good grasp on the psychic effects and tricks that were happening all across the globe. And maybe, I think it's it's definitely arguable that he he actually wanted to find the real deal. He had it in his heart that if the real deal is out there, he's going to find it. But he would very harshly punish anyone that was purporting to be the real deal, but was really just deceiving people and taking their money. It's important to remember that World War One would just be ending around this time. And so many young lives would have been lost and so many loved ones would have been lost as well. And... When you hear the idea of spiritualism that we can communicate with the other side and that it's very, very real, supposedly, it gives you the opportunity to keep in touch with your loved ones for a small fee. And this was the issue that the likes of Harry Houdini had back then and the likes of people like me that we have nowadays that essentially as magicians and mentalists, we we know how the psychics are doing what they do, as did Harry Houdini. And... To see them charging money to, to lie to people and to prey on the weak and vulnerable because they have this need to, to supposedly talk to a loved one, we see it as a, as quite a bad thing. But look, if we got into the ethics of the whole psychic thing, it would take a completely different podcast. Just suffice to say that at this time in the world, there was a lot of broken hearts. A lot of people wanted to communicate with the dead and this seemed to offer them a way. So some of the stories seem really outlandish, but you have to, again, remember there was no cinema, there's no uh, there's no special effects that we really know of, and they've nothing much to go on. So 
they're kind of believing a lot of people are believing what they're being told but anyway that's enough waffle let's just get to the juice of this story now i call the story breaking the circle because the whole story is essentially around a scientist who was sent to investigate this whole family of psychics in belfast but the whole story ends up taking a little bit of a bizarre turn i really do hope that you enjoy this whole story You'll remember from the intro that this story takes place in Belfast, which is in Northern Ireland. And it happened at a place called Ormu Road. There was a hardware store there called Morrison's. And up above Morrison's was a flat and then above them, kind of an attic. So the attic was where this family, the Gollihers, would hold their, their seances. Now, while all the family proclaimed to be mediumistic, in a sense, Kathleen, their 16-year-old daughter, was the most powerful of the group. So she was the one that people would come to see. At this time, in the, the early 1900s, a new type of psychic medium had emerged. We would call them manifestation mediums. And ectoplasm was the, the flavor of the day at this time. So ectoplasm was believed to be a, a physical manifestation of spiritual energy. Apparently it would exude from the tissues and the orifices of the psychic medium. So it's either coming from his or her mouth or use your imagination on the other areas that it could come from. So the spiritists, they would claim that it was a link between life and the afterlife and that ectoplasm itself was a, a mixture of matter and ether. It was also reported and purported that ectoplasm could actually assume the shape of like a hand or a finger and sometimes even a face similar to, to that of a, of a ghost, I imagine. The background on, on this kind of ectoplasmic or manifestation mediums came from a French woman named Martha Bayraud. I can't, I can't pronounce French names, I'm sorry. But she was later changed her name to Ava Carrier or Ava C. Now she held her own seances from 1905, which became essentially, it's a bit hard to say, but kind of pornographic in nature. Her assistant would, uh, would start the act by essentially introducing her finger into Ava C's vagina for inspection, just so everyone could see there was nothing hidden inside there. And then when the lights were turned out and the seance began, she would actually run around the room, essentially in a state of, of trance, but would actually engage in all kinds of sexual behavior. So that's just one example of, of many sexual favors underneath the seance table. It's quite a common theme that we hear about in a lot of reports if you start to study seances at that time, it kind of gives you a good idea as to why a lot of men would have gone, that it wasn't just this spooky seance type thing, but it was also a little bit raucous. And for want of a better word, we could be looking at psychic hand jobs under the table if you if you get my drift. And I think you do. So Ava C was the original ectoplasmic medium that would produce this unknown ether from, from her orifices. Now, ectoplasm itself supposedly was quite strong, could become quite physical in its structure and could move objects, levitate objects like tables and move objects above people's heads as well. Pretty, pretty spooky when you think about it. And this was the forte of Kathleen Gallagher. She was a manifestation medium. Now, she wasn't doing these raucous Ava C type parties. It was much more subdued. But Ava C was the originator that we know of and that seemed to take hold around other parts of Europe. But our story is about the Gallagher Circle in Belfast. So who were they? Well, there was the father, George, the mother, Annie. 
Then there were the daughters, Elizabeth or Lily, Annabella or Anna, and of course, Kathleen, the, the pride of the pack, the medium. Also in the house was Samuel Morrison. He was a ship's plumber by trade. He owned Morrison's Hardware, which was a shop underneath where the Gollaghers lived, and he was also the director of the Gollaghers Circle, and he lived there with Rebecca. Now, before we go on, let's have a quick breakdown of what would actually happen at these seances that became famous around the world. There were multiple people who went to them. They were very, very popular in Belfast, and I actually have a written account from somebody who you're going to hear about quite shortly. And that written account is a really good, accurate description of what would actually happen at the seances. So that account is as follows. The members constituting the circle enter the room and each sits down on his customary chair. They sit around in the form of a circle about five feet diameter and the table is placed in the centre. The ordinary illuminant is turned off and a red light turned on. The sitters clasp each other's hands in chain order and the seance commences. One of the members of the circle opens the proceedings with a prayer, and then a hymn is sung. Within a few minutes, sounds, tap, 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 are heard on the floor close to the medium. These are the first spirit rappings of the evening. They soon become louder and stronger, and occur right out in the circle space, on the table and on the chairs of the sitters. Their magnitude varies in intensity from the slightest audible ticks to blows which might well be produced by a sledgehammer. The latter really been awe-inspiring and easily heard two stories below and even outside the house. The loud blows perceptibly shake the floor and chairs. Sometimes the raps keep time to hymns sung by the members of the circle. Sometimes they tap out themselves complicated tunes and dances on top of the table or on the floor. Besides the ordinary raps, the operators can produce various modifications and peculiar variations. For instance, They can imitate a bouncing ball so perfectly that one would be prepared to affirm that the ball was really in the room. They can imitate to perfection the sawing of the table leg, the striking of a match, the walking of a man, and the trotting of a horse. They give double and treble knocks, i.e. two or three fast ones and one slow one. In fact, almost every variety and combination of rap it is possible to imagine is heard. So pretty spooky stuff, right? Now, of course, there's loads of other written accounts of various happenings at seances held by the circle, but it would just take so long to break them down and to go through each one with you. But in brief, I can explain one or two. So just so you know, the table that's placed in front of them, it's a small enough table, but that table was regularly caused to levitate. It would levitate 18 inches up in the air. It could turn on its side to the point that no one could actually push it or move it. It could turn upside down at will and turn back around at will as well. The table would tilt left and right sometimes to indicate answers for yes and no. And by all accounts, there was also something that the table did, which was almost like a self gluing to the ground. Now, magicians will know this is what we call the heavy and light effect. But for regular people, the muggles, this would simply mean that the table would ostensibly glue itself to the ground to the point that four or five strong guys wouldn't be able to lift the table or move it upwards from the ground until the spirits let go, then the table could be moved at will. So again, some very spooky stuff. There was also the incredible psychic phenomena of raps or knocks used to communicate again. So one knock, in their instance, one knock was for no, two was for doubtful and three knocks were for yes and that was used to communicate a lot of different messages with 
people attending the seances at the circle. Now, as well as that, they would regularly have people just call out the alphabet in order. And the spirits, I'm doing this with air quotes, the spirits or what they used to call the operators would indicate a message on the letter. So let's say you are thinking of the name Stephen. When you're going A, B, C, D, when you get to S, they would start knocking frantically to let you know S is the first letter that we want you to think about. And they would eventually start spelling out letters just to the point that you would be able to guess the rest. And that's how they did a lot of their communications. Seemingly very, very freaky and weird stuff. It's also important to remember that the seances were never done in in bright rooms. The rooms were always either pitch black dark or they were conducted by red, kind of ruby lit gas lights that were very, very low that would make anything in the dark quite hard to, to see. And obviously we could look at this as a way to kind of hide the mechanism that, that the fraudulent psychics would use to, to do their work as well. But the Gallaghers did, every everything they did was either in a pitch black dark room or in a room lit in a very, very dimly lit red attic. Seances at the circle usually lasted in or around an hour or maybe just over an hour. During that hour, all the things I've just mentioned would happen. Occasionally, Kathleen might get a bit faint and they might pause in the dark for about five minutes to give her a chance to recuperate. And towards the end, they would finish by singing more hymns and more prayers. And each member attending would say, good night, friends. As in, good night, friends, to the operators of the spirits. They would say, good night, friends. And to each good night, friends, each one received like a knock, like a thank you knock from the spirits. And that would be it. Light to be back on and the seance to be over. So that's a really simplified breakdown of what was going on at the Gallagher Circle, what made them so famous across the world and what brought them to the attention of Harry Houdini and a few other notable people in history as well. Of course, the Gallagher name became famous around Belfast for these supposed feats of paranormal activity that were happening at 92 Ormu Road. These seances where the dead were communicated with and even where mysterious things like tables were being levitated. Word spread as far as Queen's University Belfast to a lecturer there named William Jackson Crawford, who is going to be one of the most interesting characters in this whole story. So William Jackson Crawford was born in 1880 in New Zealand. He eventually found his way to Glasgow where he got his doctorate in science and eventually moved to Belfast to teach in Queen's University Belfast where he was a lecturer in mechanical science. So this is no fool. This is a smart motherfucker. He has got a PhD in science and he's also a lecturer in mechanical engineering. So Belfast being a small place, true word of mouth, it obviously gets to William Jackson Crawford that there is a family of psychics and him being a guy with a PhD in science, he wants to know a little bit more. So he approaches the Gallagher Circle, explains who he is and requests to do a few investigations, a few experiments and a few examinations on the circle to do research on their seances to see if he can learn more about the psychic phenomena. And to my surprise, the Gallagher Circle completely agree. They welcome him in with open arms and allow him to begin conducting research experiments on them. So in 1914, William Jackson Crawford began his investigations into the Gallagher Circle. And believe it or not, they would last for six years. It's pretty safe to say that by no means is this a fly-by-night type investigation or examination. Like This guy has gone all in. So much so that by 1916, he actually published his first book with all his findings about the, the Gallagher Circle. Now, before we get into that, 
it's important for us to cast our eyes back in history. So we know that the Fox sisters, who originated this whole movement of spiritualism, were complete fakes. They came clean. We know they were clicking their toes. Other psychics throughout history, let's say Eva Cartier from France, the ectoplasmic medium, we knew that she was fake. She was caught out multiple times. Another really, really, really famous Italian psychic medium, Eusebia Palladino, she was caught out as a fake multiple times as well. So throughout history, no matter how much fame and hype there was around a psychic medium, it always turned out that they were just complete fraudsters. Very, very talented fraudsters, very, very talented tricksters. But at the end of the day, we knew that this was not real. So when we take into consideration that the man who's going to investigate them has a doctorate in science and makes his living teaching at a university level as a lecturer in mechanical engineering. It's going to be pretty hard to pull the wool over his eyes. It's going to be hard to fool him. And it's safe to say that not a lot should really get past him, right? Wrong. To my utter surprise, absolutely wrong. In his six years of in-depth, like we're talking in-depth research here into the Gallagher Circle, William Jackson Crawford was 100% without a shadow of a doubt convinced that they were the real deal. And what they were doing was contacting the other world and that it was all paranormal and that spirits were moving tables and communicating with us and that essentially life didn't end at the grave. He was so convinced of their legitimacy that he actually wrote and published three books containing all the research that he had done on them. The books were The Reality of Psychic Phenomena, The Psychic Structures of the Gallagher Circle, and Experiments in Psychical Science, Levitation, Contact, and The Direct Voice. Now, in these books, he posited that they have somehow found a whole new arena of science and a whole new feat of, of engineering called ectoplasmic rods. So, as you're listening to this, you might be wondering, okay, what the hell is ectoplasm? Maybe you've heard it in like a ghost story. Maybe it's in Ghostbusters or something like that. It's been a while since I watched it. But if you don't know what ectoplasm is, let's try and give you kind of a, a, a way of thinking about it so you have a better understanding of it as I talk about it. So let's try this. Imagine that you are sat on a chair, just a normal chair, in front of a normal table. The table is just in front of you. Now, ectoplasm supposedly came from the orifices of the medium. So for the sake of keeping this one clean, let's just imagine it's going to emit from your mouth. So as you're sat there in your chair in front of the table, you're going to open your mouth and imagine this. A white, misty, fibrous-like substance is going to slowly start emitting itself from your mouth. And it has a very definite direction. It's going to go down your chest, down towards your hips and then across your knees and then all the way down to the ground. Once it hits the ground, it's going to run parallel underneath the table to the center of the table. It's going to change direction and start going upwards. As it comes upwards, it's going to lift the table off the ground because it's now a strong structure, like a lever, like a rod. And it's going to cause that table to levitate straight up in the air. That's essentially what uh, William Jackson Crawford believed ectoplasm was. He thought that at the end of the, the structure of ectoplasm, there was like suction-like grippers that could grip things and cause the, they, they could levitate things above your head, move things around a room and push tables upwards. He also believed, and this bit makes me laugh, that sometimes the end of the ectoplasm could take the form of a human hand or, a, or, or something similar to a thumb, which when you think about it, <laughs> it's, it's a little bit ridiculous, isn't it? 
But that's ectoplasm. Now, if you take out your phone and if you Google ectoplasm, a load of photos will show up that will give you kind of a visual of what it actually looked like from the investigation photos that have been taken all throughout history. You can even find some of the ones from Kathleen Gallagher if you put her name into Google on your phone right now. You'll see some photos of her and the ectoplasm coming from her as well. And that is exactly what William Jackson Crawford believed was passing through from the other world, passing through Kathleen Gallagher and causing these incredible things to happen during seances. So he wrote about these in his books, referring to them as cantilevers or or psychic rods and literally went all in in his belief that this was revolutionary new science and that this was about to change the world like his discoveries were about to change the world at this juncture it's important to actually note that a lot of his fellow researchers that might have been investigating other so-called psychics around the world all thought that Crawford was mad no matter how much he argued that he thought he had found the real deal he was to to most people mad and largely discredited even Harry Houdini who was the kind of father figure of debunking fake fake psychics and fake seances. Houdini met Crawford during his experiments. He met him in London and he wrote about it in this book and this is the thing that helped me find this whole story. And um, the excerpt I'll, I'll just read the excerpt from the book so you can understand what Houdini Houdini thought of him. While at Mr. Fielding's home in London, I had the pleasure of meeting this Dr. Crawford and talking with him for several hours. During the talk, he showed me pictures of what he claimed was ectoplasm, exuding from the different parts of Kathleen Gallagher's body, and told me he was going to use them in a forthcoming book. Do you honestly believe that everything you have experienced through your contact and experiments with the girl is absolutely genuine? I asked him. I am positive in my belief, he answered. After he had gone, Mr. Fielding turned to me and asked, What do you think of Dr. Crawford? He seems mad to me, I answered. Houdini, you are mistaken, he replied. Nevertheless, I do not think that Dr. Crawford was the right man or had the right sort of mind for an investigation. To me, his credulity seemed limitless. And there you have it. The master magician has spoken. That's his opinion on Crawford. Even when Crawford was just about to publish his first book, there was two more on the way. This is how much he he completely believed in this. Another note on Crawford is that he was a married man. He had two young daughters and he had a son. He was quite well paid in his position in Queen's University and um, his records even show that he had a servant in his house. So he was living that comfy life, you know. But things take a little bit of a weird turn as you begin to read in depth into into his research experiments. And the weird thing... That stands out the most, and trust me, I feel like fucking Jeffrey Epstein saying this out loud, is that he developed a really strange obsession with Kathleen Gallagher, who was 16. He developed a really strange obsession with her underwear. Weird, right? So after each experiment, after each seance, he would insist on keeping her underwear. Now, his argument was that he was trying to look for traces of how the ectoplasm may be either leaving her body or finding its way back in. Now, like, it's it's such a strange part of the story. And trust me, it gets a little bit stranger as well. But it's it's all here. And I have his I have his book here, one of the books he wrote, The Psychic Structures of the Gallagher Circle. It's here in front of me. And even if just if we look at some of the experiments, it starts off. 
The medium put on white calico knickers under my wife's supervision. The next one, the, the medium had on a pair of white knickers, as in the last experiment. Experiment JJ. The medium sat under test conditions in clean white knickers. The knickers were found to be heavily marked. The, the medium sat in clean white calico knickers. There's, it goes on and on. It's, it's really weird to read. Because he, he does a breakdown of each experiment that he did. And in all of them, he makes some reference to keeping her underwear and examining her underwear. This 16-year-old girl from Belfast. So make of that what you will. It's one of the more weird aspects of, of the whole case. But the saddest and the most shocking part of the story comes on the 30th of July. When William Jackson Crawford took his own life, he committed suicide. Out of the blue. He was 40 years old, his research was going amazingly well according to him. His third book was about to be published. And seemingly out of the blue, he took his own life. He overdosed on cyanide. And his body was found supposedly naked washed up on the Peaky Rocks, which is in Bangor, County Down. Very bizarre, very tragic, and as always, with anything suicide-related, very, very sad as well for something like that to happen completely out of the blue. So this point in the story is a really good place to end Episode 8, Part 1. I'm calling it Part 1 and Part 2 purely because to tell the whole story, it takes about an hour and 40 minutes with all the different research and all the different elements involved. I know you guys don't really want to listen to a podcast for an hour and 40 minutes. So I'm grateful that you, if you're still here, that you've even listened to an hour. I really do appreciate it. If you found this interesting so far, the next episode is going to come out next week. Now, in that episode, I'm going to share a lot more about what happens next in the case. Mainly about a man that comes after William Jackson Crawford to do his own investigations on the circle and what happened there. As well as that, I'm going to share a few theories behind why we think William Crawford may have taken his own life. As well as that, I'll break down exactly how the Gallagher Circle were managing to fool so many people, including such a learned man as William Jackson Crawford. Then I'm going to share a few theories behind his death, some, some really interesting stuff that came out in interviews after the fact, and even a few details about a remaining family member of Kathleen Gallagher who's still alive and kicking today. So guys, if you've listened this far, I really do appreciate it. I just want to say thank you so much for your time. I, I know even though we're all in quarantine, it kind of feels hard to find an hour to listen to a podcast episode, right? So thank you from the bottom of my heart. It's a subject I've been fascinated with for a long time. I can't wait to share the rest of the details with you as well in next week's episode. So if you want to keep in touch, you can find me at Rua underscore magician on Instagram, or you can follow the official page. I say official. I don't really use it that much. I need to get better at it. The Instagram account for the, for the podcast is watch underscore your underscore angles. All right, guys, I hope you tune in next week to find out a bit more about breaking the circle. Until then, have a great week and take care of yourselves. Yeah.